to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. If you live through the 80s and 90s, then you know what I mean when I say that the media has rarely been kind to normal bodies. Zach Morris. Should we talk about Zach Morris? No, okay, I'm going to save that and save by the bell. We're doing a whole episode on media. That's going to come later. But there's one example that stands out to me for slightly different reasons that I want to bring up now. I'm hoping you've seen The Office, but if you haven't, there's an episode in season five called Weight Loss, where everyone's trying to win a prize as part of a corporate health initiative. So they start taking drastic measures, including fad diets or just plain starving. They're body shaming each other, and it just gets way out of control, and then it all backfires in the end. Big surprise. But as far as comedy goes, it's maybe better than the way that older sitcoms portray diet culture because they're making fun of it instead of just making it seem like a good thing or just sort of normal. Although there's still something a little problematic about how a sitcom setting can't include long-term consequences and everything wraps up neatly at the end of the episode, which, of course, nothing does in real life. (sighs) That's another conversation. We're going to get to that. But here's why I'm bringing this up now. Unlike media, which glorifies and normalizes dieting, this episode of The Office is kind of doing the opposite, and it's relying on recognition humor. One of the reasons why this episode is so funny is because we're all in on the joke. We all understand that this is something that people do and it's normalized and everyone's kind of tried it. So that's why the humor's there. It's really specific. So we're all able to laugh about it together because we all get it. We're all in on the joke. But the joke's on us because we think this is normal. In exploring body image and how to get a positive body image, I really want to talk about how we can reclaim and be very intentional about nurturing our body. And that does include eating and exercising. But I don't think that we can have that conversation before we talk about eating disorders. And I know it's uncomfortable. And we've heard of a lot of the main ones. But we don't really talk about disordered thinking, eating, and exercising a lot because it's become so normal in our society society, that we don't even blink an eye when we hear about it, when we talk about it. In fact, we participate in it a lot of times without even knowing it. We have an expert, Amy Harmon, who is going to get more into this wide range of disordered thinking and why sometimes the definitions that we have in our heads about healthy might actually be pushing us or our loved ones into really dangerous, even sometimes life-threatening diseases and behaviors. I didn't realize this before I took on the topic, but one in every nine people will have a diagnosable eating disorder at some point in their lives. And this really surprised me. It means that most of us know hundreds of people who have struggled with this. And those are just the diagnosable cases. I know that I don't have uh, one in nine friends who are actually talking about struggling with an eating disorder. Of the loved ones I know who have been willing to share about theirs, it's usually after the fact, after they feel like it's in control and time has gone by, not usually in it. That kind of silence and isolation surrounding 
all of these struggling with it is honestly pretty scary and more normal around us than I ever realized. I mean, this is the age where we're living where we feel like, hey, we've come in such great strides in talking and dealing with mental health. So why is this different, right? Why haven't we destigmatized the way we talk about this? We're talking about eating disorders head on because with disordered thinking already in the background, we can't really have an honest, vulnerable, safe conversation about health, right, which is is what we're all concerned about, before we really shine a light on diseases that counterfeit the feeling of, this must be healthy. I'm doing this for my health. One of our friends of the show, Raquel, shared some of her own journey with us, and I really want you to hear her describe this. Living off of just a little bit of calories a day, I would be so tired. And then I would force myself to work out. And I remember being on the stair climber, just like, okay, one more one more flight. And just like, I could barely walk up. My mom actually says, you know, you used to come and sit by me in church and you would just lay your head down on my shoulder because you could barely hold your head up. And I did. I was tired, but I something in me just kept pushing and pushing. It was almost like this mental battle. I was in the shower and I was washing my hair and a big chunk of hair fell out. (laughs) And I was just holding hair in my hand thinking, oh my gosh, what is happening to me? That was kind of scary for me. And I went to my mom and I just said, mom, like I'm losing hair. I don't know what to do. And she said, I think I think it's time to go to some therapy. Raquel has an amazing journey, and I'm going to play more of it for you. But I want to have our expert, Amy Harmon, give us a little bit more background. Now, Amy comes very highly recommended from a lot of different sources, not only because of her degree in psychology and a master's in marriage and family therapy, but also from a lot of experience working with women struggling with eating disorders and her own passion about body image. I asked her about the statistics which say that eating disorders are on the rise and really what that means. When they talk about eating disorders are up globally, they're talking about, you know, the clinical diagnosis. They're talking about anorexia. They're talking about bulimia. They're talking about binge eating. Um, A wider category is um, eating disorders that aren't really fitting neatly into those categories, but it can still be um, a diagnosable eating disorder. Um, And and so that's up. I would say that also disordered eating, even if it doesn't make it to that clinical um, definition or diagnosis, there's still a lot of disordered eating all around us. And it's a way for people to cope with hard times. And I think that's why it's up. Because our our whole world has had just a huge um, event with this pandemic, and it's brought up a lot of issues that I think a lot of people are um, reacting to in various ways. And one of those ways is disordered eating. Okay, so earlier you said that there are some eating disorders that don't fit neatly in a category. I think when we think of mm-hmm. eating disorders, we think of anorexia, bulimia, um, binging and purging. Uh, what are the other ones that maybe fall through the cracks or are not as easily recognizable? So the technical term is otherwise 
specified feeding and eating disorder. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Ofsped? O-S-F-E-D. So Ofsped. And um, it's basically like if somebody has um, restrictive eating that would qualify for anorexia, but let's say they haven't lost enough weight yet to qualify for anorexia, well, then we put them in Ofsped. Or maybe... There is some purging going on, but not binging, um, but not weight loss. Well, we'll probably put them in OSFED, you know. So there are a lot of ways to have um, disordered eating and, and an unhealthy relationship with food that maybe doesn't fit neatly in a category. And I think it is important for people to be aware of that because they'll say, oh, well, I'm not underweight, so I guess everything is fine you know, or I'm not overweight or whatever, whatever for them, their conceptualizing an eating disorder looks like, well, if your relationship with food isn't healthy, it may still really be impacting your life. So it's important to get help for that. When I hear Amy describe this sort of spectrum of disordered thinking, it feels a lot more broad than what I tend to think of when I'm conceptualizing like what an eating disorder is. And like she said, when it's so easy to say, well, I'm okay, I don't need help because I don't, at least I don't have this or that, you know, with a traditional definition of an eating disorder. I mean, any of us, probably a lot more of us are in that space than we realize. And it really made me think, and I'm actually still sort of processing that because it's a little uncomfortable, but I can think of some times in my life when my relationship with food probably wasn't all that healthy, where I was too concerned with it, too rigid, had too many rules. And this is exactly how I justified it. So naturally, my next question was, if we can't rely on the stock definition of what an eating disorder is to tell us if we have a problem, how do we identify having a problem? And Amy had a really interesting answer for that. I think about diet culture, and I just think anything diet culture tells you to do, for me, probably hinges on disordered eating. When it comes to an individual and their relationship with food, I think it's someone who is uncomfortable eating regular meals and snacks, feeling a little bit trapped by food. Um, either that they can't eat it or they feel like they don't have control over food, like maybe they're out of control in some way. I think people who can't go out to eat, you know, with their friends or with family, you know, that causes anxiety or trouble. You know, there are a lot of different ways to have an uncomfortable or disordered relationship with food. And I strive, you know, with my clients, I'm really hoping for them to be able to eat regular meals, eat snacks, enjoy food, not counting calories, not worried about, you know, what it's going to do to your body, not feeling guilty for eating. That's what I strive for normal eating. And so anything kind of outside of that, I would say is a bit disordered. Wow. So that includes a lot of different ways of approaching food and dealing with it when you say any sort of diet. So you can see the wall that every we're all up against if we say, Mm -hmm. hey, I want to be healthy, you know, even if it's not about weight, and I want to eat this certain way and not this way, and you say normal eating or regular eating, you can see why we're all so confused of like, well, what is that? What is healthy Mm -hmm. eating then? What is quote unquote normal meals and snacking? You know, when there's so many Mm -hmm. different kinds of maybe diets or way to eat, you know, you can see why we are collectively actually just confused as to what is quote unquote healthy eating. So what is it? Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> well, I actually don't love the term healthy because I think that, like you said, what is healthy? You know, so if you Google healthy eating, are you going to get a high protein diet? Are you going to get a low fat diet? I mean, remember back in the 90s when nobody was eating fat? No, you know, and I was like, just talking about that on the podcast. <laughs> I was like, we ate low fat everything. We'd have a baked potato with yeah. low fat like sour cream or and we just thought this is the way you eat and like it and it, it is completely changed and then now yeah. no one i remember my kids they were like wait you ate baked potatoes as diet food and i was like oh yeah and low fat yogurt and that was the thing yeah and so that that's why i don't love the term healthy because it is constantly changing it it's really um at the whims of society and kind of what trends are out there. I don't think it's totally based on science because our science isn't accurate. At this point, Amy mentions something that is at the heart of her practice and her whole philosophy as a therapist. And it also provides a rule of thumb for that question I had earlier. How do you know if you have a problem? She talks about wholeness. This is where therapy comes in. We have to consider the whole person. Is being physically healthy in whatever term, you know, someone might think that is, is that really your number one priority in life? Or do you also need to think about emotional wellness, intellectual wellness, relationship wellness, um, spiritual wellness, you know, all, all these kind of different um, aspects of a person are important to balance. And so when someone comes to me and they say, oh, I have an eating disorder, I have a disordered relationship with food, we don't talk about healthy eating. We talk about how can we make your eating normal, whatever that is also, but normal enough so that you can have a balanced relationship with food, but also balancing all these other aspects of yourself that make you who you are so that food isn't, you know, overshadowing your mental health. It's not overshadowing your relationships. You know, all of those different aspects of yourself shouldn't be overshadowed by your philosophy on food. The description of overshadowing, of having other aspects of your life overshadowed by food is something that was described to us by Raquel. And I want to rewind a little bit in her story so that you can hear her experience. I started running in the mornings before school when I was in third grade. Oh, wow. To, to, just, to just have that perfect body. Within my family, we were a little dysfunctional. There was fighting. Um, I think that happens in every family. But there were some some things that were hard growing up. And we love food. <laughs> we love to eat together. That was sometimes our happiest moments. So food became a comfort for me as I was growing up, but it was also uncomfortable for me because the issue of body image and weight was always a thing. And I think it also within the culture of perfection that sometimes we we have, and then society being young in the eighties and and knowing that there's this image of weight loss and everything was about have the perfect body and that really I internalized that a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so 
So as you grew up, how did your relationship with your body sort of evolve? What happened after that? All of my friends were smaller than me. I gained weight easily and later found out that I had a thyroid disease that (laughs) contributed to that, but I didn't know. I was constantly looking for approval from friends. I wanted to be liked. I wanted to be loved. I was a fun kid. I was energetic and I was social, Mm -hmm. but I was afraid of what people thought a lot. And that had a big impact on my body. I was so scared of what people would think of me. I started to be worried about bathing suits. In eighth grade, like I still remember the day. I remember everything that happened. I was wearing these shorts that I thought were adorable. They were so cute, yellow and white checkered. And they weren't the knee-length shorts that I usually wore because I wanted to hide my thighs. I wore shorter shirts. I'm like, okay, I'm going to just do it. All the other girls are doing it. And this boy told me, you should never wear shorts again. And I just went home, like, just mortified. Like, And he said it in front of the class, and I just oh. was like, okay. So I went home and didn't wear shorts again to school, unless they were longer, you know, wow. and covered my thighs. You may recognize this story Raquel is telling because we sampled it in episode one. And I have to tell you, it gets me every time. I don't know many women when I talk to them and say, hey, did anybody ever shame you about your body or something that you wore that doesn't have an answer? I mean, I certainly do too. It is a familiar story. Raquel shared that over the next few years, her relationship with exercise evolved. She'd already been running for weight loss as a young child, but now it became a tool she used to punish herself for eating what seemed like the wrong things. But even as she punished herself more and more, she just felt worse about her body. And I asked her if there was a single moment she could pinpoint in all of these experiences when the eating disorder began. In the mind, it was always there. But the actions was my senior year. I had continued to gain weight, but I was still exercising. And looking back, you know, I had a thyroid disease that was causing me to gain weight, and I just didn't know. But um, I had gained quite a bit of weight my senior year of high school. And um, there was kind of a boy that was talking to me, and I was like, okay, this is it. Like, I am not—I'm going to— I'm just, I can't eat anymore. I can't do this because I I just have to look this certain way. You know, I have to get this boy's attention. And I just stopped eating. And and then I went from really enjoying food to just staying away from it. And then I would spend hours at the gym. And my parents knew that I loved to go to the gym. And so they let me go, but it became... I I just started neglecting everything, friendships. You know, I didn't hang out with my friends anymore because I knew they were going to go eat, and I couldn't be with them if they were going to eat. So I stopped hanging out with friends, and I did get the attention of this boy, and that just gave me fuel to my fire. You know, I just—it just perpetuated all all of my desire to just be skinny. Were you weak during this time? Yes. Did you have mental fog and other? Mm -hmm. Describe what that time of life, when you think back to it, looks like and feels like. Um, I would go to school and be tired. 
And having a thyroid disease made me tired already, but then living off of just a little bit of calories a day, I would be so tired, and then I would force myself to work out. And I remember being on the stair climber just like... This is the part of the story where Raquel is on the Stairmaster, even though she can barely walk because her body is so exhausted, and even holding her head up is an enormous cost of energy and strength. As her brain starves, it gets so much harder to maintain control against the disease consuming her physically, mentally, and emotionally. Kept pushing and pushing. It was almost like this mental battle. I had these moments of clarity where I was like, oh, don't do this. This could affect children and all these things. And then I, you know, I'd have this other voice in my head that was like, but you have come so far, you know, you've lost all this weight. What if you gain it? Nobody will talk to you anymore. You know, I, I did. And it's sad to say that in my senior year of high school, I got a lot of attention from people, a lot of attention. What did they say? Oh, just how amazing I looked and, you know, I've lost so much weight and they were so proud of me. And um, like, wow, you look really great. You're exercising. You look healthy. And then some of my friends were like, uh, okay, this is, you, you never hang out with us anymore. And, and I could totally distance myself from them. There were teachers that I had, even adults, that just told me how good I looked. And they noticed me and they talked to me, whereas before I was, I, I was social and fun, but I, I kind of would hide a little bit. And so to have all that attention mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. reinforced that, like, this is how you're going to get love. This is how people notice you. you you're only good if, you, if you're skinnier. And so... And, and, you know, I've done it when somebody's been exercising and lost weight. You're like, oh, my gosh, you look so good. And while you want to, like, because it's hard work and sometimes for health reasons when that, you know, it's needed and you want to help people out that way. But it just sends the wrong message. This part of Raquel's story makes me pause. I think of all the young women in my life, my daughters, daughters of my friends. I teach a class at church, people I work with. I mean, any of them could be Raquel. And I would really hate to be a part of the environment which sends this horrifying, degrading message with the best of intentions. We talked about all of this a little bit, and Raquel had some insights on how her own experience informs the way she communicates now. I have to be careful about praising girls in that way. Or in any physical way, yeah, really. Yeah. Because you don't want them to feel that that's where their value lies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, cute dress. Oh. Yeah, like, even that. Yeah, I know. even that. I'm just like, okay, what could I say? So what I've been trying to do is yeah. like, um, cute dress, that color looks like really, how did you come up with that color? Did you, do you, is that your favorite color? Do you like it? Just so I can mm -hmm. kind of make it about like, they chose it for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe they chose it because they love that color. This issue that Raquel brought up about communication that we all participate in and encourage, it also came up in the conversation that I had with Amy Harmon, who sees the impact of communicating on her clients in therapy all the time. I basically asked, okay, if you could just make a list 
of things or phrases and questions that you could snap your fingers and just erase from our society. You know, things that maybe we're asking or saying that are unknowingly triggering disordered eating and making eating disorders worse. What would those things be? Yeah, definitely. What do you eat in a day? Can I just eliminate all that? Oh, (laughs) well, that's a whole genre on TikTok. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) We can't do that. <laughs> I know. Can we eliminate that question? What do I eat in a day? Oh, interesting. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I, I don't think we need to be comparing what we eat with each other. <laughs> you know, to me, it's um, so much help, more helpful to think of, you know, asking questions that are a little bit more interesting, too. Like, hey, what fun project are you working on? What are you looking forward to? Right? Oh, yes. I what get brought what you-, you joy today? I mean, anything <laughs> more than yeah, that. Well, I'll tell you this, I have made a point of not commenting on someone's appearance when I first see them. Oh my goodness, I haven't seen you for so long. You look great. I don't do that. I'm more I'm more leaning towards what you're talking about. Like questions that we can ask people that are not about their appearance or compliments we can give people that are not about their appearance. I am so glad we can be together today. Oh my goodness, it's so wonderful to see you. Thank you for that bright smile. You know, all of those things to me are more important um, than making those appearance-based comments. And I'm a, I'm kind of awkward in social situations because sometimes people will compliment, you know, what I'm wearing or how I look and I'll just say, thank you. And I do not feel pressure at all to return an appearance-based compliment, like we're supposed to. Mm. I mean, that's what's socially appropriate, right. probably. You oh, just sort well, of redirect. Like dress. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm just like, oh, thank you. I appreciate that. That's interesting. It's a different and way of, like, of, of thinking, but it's also a different way of speaking and showing up in the world. Yeah. I just want people to know, like, that's nice of you to offer that, but it's not it's not why I'm here, and it's not where our conversation is going to go. Yeah. I'd rather talk about other things. Since this conversation with Amy, I've been paying attention, extra attention to the way that I'm speaking and trying to remove those automatic, socially acceptable comments about appearance. And it's really eye-opening. When you start to get out of these habits, you realize how deep the roots go and how often we just reach to appearance as an easy way to identify ourselves and others or just to say hello. I want to go back to Raquel's story now. We heard earlier how her hair began to fall out, and that's when she reached out for help. It's one of the bravest things you can do. Confront something that's so much bigger than you. Breaking that silence, even when your brain is spinning this narrative that says, well, others won't love you if you own your truth, that takes extraordinary courage. At this point in her journey, Raquel began participating in an outpatient rehabilitation program, but there were still some hiccups ahead before she found the right fit and could begin to heal. They started me in group therapy, which is not for everybody. <laughs> that was turned Why's out to that? be <laughs> yeah, turned out to not be good for me mm-hmm. because I got ideas, you know, and I, I've compared myself to all got the other ideas girls for what for what some of the other girls were doing to not eat. Oh, you're kidding! Or to, yeah, because it was an eating disorder yeah. therapy group therapy, and um, so you thought, oh, I can keep doing this. Mm-hmm. Which is the opposite of why you went there. So (laughs) Yeah. So we moved I moved out of group therapy and just met one on one with a dietitian and that turned out to be really helpful. What was it about what the dietitian told you that 
that had you change your mindset? She broke everything down into fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. And she basically showed me, like, the science of food. And she was like, everything is made up of these things you're eating. So it's okay if you have that brownie. It's a fat, protein, and carbohydrate. It has everything in it, you know, just the same as these apples. It just has different balances, you know. And and I was just like, oh, my gosh, you're right. Like, I couldn't—okay, I can eat this. I can eat this and not feel like I am terrified of it. So I did. I started eating like a dessert every now and then. I remember for my 19th birthday, I went out with some friends and they, um, we got some ice cream. And I was just like, oh, like they had got it for me. It was for my birthday. And so I was like, I should probably, I should probably have some of this. And okay, it's my birthday. It's okay. It's a fat carb and it probably has some protein in there, you know. And so I ate it and I felt okay, and I was like, okay. And that was the first time I had eaten a dessert like that and not felt like of that panicky feeling, which is what I had felt before. I had felt, you know, after I ate something, it was like, oh, my gosh, I shouldn't have done that because I would just panic. And my mom had told me that she used to kind of watch me, and if they got me to eat something, she would watch me, like, eat it and then walk up and pace for a little bit, like, mm-hmm. trying to decide and— and I know my mom had to be really careful about what she would say to me because sometimes it would push me further. And if we got into a fight, that would fuel me into, you don't understand, I'm, you know, I'm going to do this because I want to. That was how it was when when I started to eat again. <laughs> so you started to eat again. And then what was the recovery process like? How did it you um, know, change your... Recovery has been a long time. After I started to eat again, it almost went like I had gone so long without eating a lot that I almost couldn't stop. I went into a binge purge cycle for a little bit to where it was every now and then I could handle it, but then I would go too far and I would feel too sick and then I would have to get rid of it. But it was less frequent than every single day. It was it was a really hard process my brain was like, oh my gosh, food. <laughs> like, we love food. Let's remember this. Yeah. yeah remember really? how much we love this. And, but the other voice in my head was like, you, you know, you can't, you can't do this. You can't eat. You, you know, you can't. Even with, armed with all of the information that you had been, mm-hmm. that you'd re- received yeah. from therapists and from loved ones. Yeah. You know, it really came down to loving myself. And that is the biggest thing that I've learned is that I didn't value myself. And so recovery took a long time because I just didn't feel worthy of that love from heavenly parents. And I didn't feel worthy of that love for myself. So how did you find that love? Or how did you believe it, that it was always there? Lots of years of... Raising children. <laughs> really? Yeah. So we're talking decades of work. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm almost 40. So that was 20 years ago. And I would say probably between 10 and 15 years ago was when I really started to believe. Wow. Believe it. What was the turning believe. point? I think it was um, it was some faith crisis. So the first time I had, I really question what I believed was when I, so I had postpartum depression after my babies 
and I have four and I had it every time. So Mm -hmm. it was a miracle. I have four, but, and a miracle really that I'm still here. It, It was a really dark time and I was so sleep deprived, but I had, um, anxiety about sleeping and the postpartum depression anxiety was really, I just could not sleep. And I was praying for sleep. And I was like, look, I am being a mother. This is what I've been called to do. And I need sleep. And it just, my anxiety was so bad that I couldn't sleep. And that's when I was like, okay, I don't believe any of this. I'm totally abandoned. And that's when I took a step back and I just felt completely alone. And then I started thinking about my kids. What would I want them to believe? What would I want them to know through my life experiences? What can I pass on? And that was when I specifically prayed one. I'm like, I'm going to just do this one more time. Are you there? I'm going to wait. And then I felt that love. And it was the seed that was planted. That was the beginning of feeling the love that I knew was within me and that I knew could grow. I knew that I felt that for my own children. It was through that that I started to believe that I was more, that I was worth more, that I could make a difference in people's lives, that I could accomplish more than just the perfect body. You know, I could go to school. I I never really finished school. And I'm back in school now. <laughs> and oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's awesome and very hard. But yeah. <laughs> especially when I'm trying to get the other people through school. Right. <laughs> you know, seventh grade is not fun, but <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, it was all through all of that that I really had to dig deep and figure out why I was here, what what was my life about, and where am I going? What do I have to offer? So that's that's where that realization came was I had decided to pray one more time and it started to grow and I just knew I was loved and I had to keep drawing on that experience. Anytime I felt alone, I had to say, okay, I have felt this before. It's there. I'm going to dig deep and try to feel it again. I feel so inspired by Raquel's resilience and strength. When we tell these kinds of stories, we focus on the turning points like this, but I so appreciate her mentioning all of the time in between, where she had to choose to rely on that experience and dig deep, keep trying even when the light at the end of the tunnel didn't feel as close. All these years later, Raquel continues to implement what she's learned and makes intentional choices to keep herself in recovery. She describes how she combats old habits of negative thinking with self-talk that reinforces the truth about herself and her body. You know, I was listening to your um, self-care <laughs> podcast about, you know, how we take care of ourselves. And one of the little kids, you know, we we don't say mean things to ourselves. We talk nicely. And that, I was so mean to myself. Don't eat that. You're so fat. You're, you know, like, oh my gosh, you're so weak. How could you give in to that? You know, thinking that it would help me do better the next time Mm -hmm. when really it was just creating that pathway in my brain of you're not good enough. 
you're not lovable, you're not worthy of love. And so now one of the things I do is I am worthy of love. I am loved. I have a ton of people who love me. I love them just as much. And it makes me want to treat my body better. Yeah, and really honor it. Mm -hmm. I just take care of my body in a more intentional way, and I love my body. I am so grateful to Raquel for her candor and being willing to share this piece of her life with us. We're going to go back to Amy Harmon now and something she shared about balance and evaluating your own intentions when it comes to our relationship with food. Is it taking so much of your time that you're neglecting other things? Right. And, and so again, that that's where I come in with this whole idea of balance. I'm like, are you so worried about mm-hmm. tracking that you can't eat, you know, a yummy dessert at your friend's house? You know, to me, that's interrupting um, your enjoyment, you know, your social life. Um, so I don't, I'm sure there are ways to engage with tracking your food or um, a healthy <laughs> healthy way to do that. Um, I just think it's important to evaluate it. it. It's important to be conscious of it and and understand, is this something I lean on when I feel like my life is out of control? Something's going on in my personal life, maybe having conflict in my marriage, maybe, you know, things aren't going so well with the kids or with work. Do I tend to think it's, it's because I need to lose weight. And if I could just get some control, um, over myself, maybe this will help me feel better. So is, is it a way to kind of solve a problem that really can be solved another way? You know, I, I think it's, it's less about, what you do, and more about why you do it. And and I think that needs to be the guide. I love that metric, examining the why of how you treat your body and where those decisions are coming from. There is one last piece of Amy's advice that I'd like to share. And for context, this was just something that happened during the interview. We surprised her by holding it over Zoom instead of just a phone call, meaning that we put her on the spot (laughs) in that face-to-face conversation that she thought was just going to be a call. And the way she handled that was such a cool demonstration of what she preaches. And it was a great model for being self-aware. So listen for that as she gives this last advice. When I work with my clients on body image, I am clear from from the beginning and throughout that you're not going to have perfect body image. You're not going to be perfectly in love with your body every moment of the rest of your life. Like no therapy we can do (laughs) is going to counteract the cultural messages, you know, in our society and and the way things are. And I, I even look at myself, you know, I have been in this field (laughs) for over a decade, you know, really um, studying body image, preaching body image, and I still struggle. Right. right? And so, you know, if, if me, an expert, if you want to call me that, I don't know, um, still have body image issues at times, you know, how can I expect my clients to do that? And so the, the goal I have for people who are working on body image is that, can you be in this society, in our culture, in your family, um, at work, 
and and still show up in the body you have today um, without letting that take away from you. Let it, without letting your physical appearance take away from your emotional health, your relationship mm-hmm. health, your passions, you know, all of those things that you're doing. That that's the key, you know, that we show up every day in the body that we're in and realize, you know, I'm not going to be any less of a mom or any less of um, an employee or whatever we're doing in our work, any less of a student because of my body, because of what I look like. And I'm thinking that, you know, to myself today, as I show up to this podcast on Zoom, <laughs> yes, you know, am I going to be less of an expert because I'm not wearing makeup and I didn't do my hair today? Or can I still show up in this body, you know, and, and do and say something that's going to be helpful for your listeners? Yeah. And I just think of the tragedy of those who cannot show up and then offer their Mm -hmm. gifts, the things, I mean, we need your information. We need your tools, obviously. And I just think, what if that body image was so crippling that you couldn't do it, that you couldn't add? It's it's just the collective losses that society has that I think is the biggest tragedy because they're left silent. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Just think how many people aren't showing up feeling joy, creating joy, goodness for other people, you know, helping all, all the things because of this sort of disordered way of thinking. And that's why I really appreciate you taking the time to share, you know, what you've learned. And, and so I'd like to get to some of those specific tools for people. Maybe sure. there's someone listening who's thinking, oh, I'm fine. Like, I look okay. I don't love how I look, but I don't have an eating disorder. And maybe through this conversation is thinking, Wait, I do that. I do. (laughs) I count calories. I maybe don't, you know, I'm a little restrictive. Sometimes I do this and that and the other, whatever it is, and is thinking, well, well, what do I do? Yeah. Where do you start with, with people who maybe for so many years have thought, it's fine, it's not a problem? What I will say is um, try going without it. So if you love to count calories and you don't think it's a problem, what if you didn't count calories? What if you went a week without counting calories and could you do it? And how would that affect you? And if that causes anxiety, um, if it kind of, if you kind of melt down, right, then maybe, maybe counting calories is, isn't great for you. Or what if you go a week without weighing yourself? What if you go a month without weighing yourself? How does that feel? Does it create anxiety? What if you go a week with eating three meals every single day? You know, maybe there's someone like who skips meals, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you can't go without your favorite thing, maybe it's your MyFitnessPal, (laughs) Maybe you love to log, you know, what you're eating and your calories. If you can't go without it, without causing anxiety and worry within yourself, then maybe it's not as benign as you think it is. And that's the whole point of why we're talking about it and why I really appreciate Amy coming on as a therapist who has worked specifically with women who struggle with eating disorders to share what she hopes everyone knows. And One thing that I was really struck with in creating this podcast was that it wasn't very difficult to find women who've struggled with an eating disorder. 
really made me pause, and I've come to learn how many more hide it than I had previously considered. And in those conversations, part of the hiding it or fueling of it is usually connected with the pursuit of health. But any health initiative can turn to an extreme and be turned into a tool to torture your body. And many times, we don't realize that it's headed into an unhealthy territory until we're already in it. We should be having good, safe conversations about health. We should be also aware of all the unseen, often subtle, but definitely prevalent messages that use health and wellness and praise to encourage disordered thinking. I'm really grateful for women who are willing to talk about eating disorders in a vulnerable way. Change is possible, and they are examples of not only that, but that the connection or telling our stories is a vital part of that change. If you're listening and you're having that thought that Amy described, like maybe this isn't as benign as I think it is, I want to add that for all the good that these conversations do and for all of the connection that we feel and making it better for everybody by the way we talk and and what we call out, I mean, this doesn't replace professional help or even come close. It can be really scary to take that first step and reach out for help, but there's so many incredible resources out there I'm going to put the links to some of those places where you can start finding a good match in our show notes. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. It's hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark and produced by Becca Hurley and McKay Menden with help from Kaya Dibb and music and post-production by Josh Fouts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Join our listener community on Facebook or follow us on Instagram for more content and behind the scenes with Lisa. Thank you.